uh, I used to listen to the Futurama like commentaries and they're honestly like funnier than some of the episodes a lot of times. I believe but, it. But the work that goes into, was that a sarcastic, I believe it? <laughs> no, that was like, I don't think Futurama is that funny. So I totally believe the commentary is actually funnier. That's what I thought. Go fuck yourself. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Alon. And this is David. And today I finally watched This Is Spinal Tap. Grant, okay, so granted, I watched this when I was like, I don't know, 14, 15. It's kind of like a blur because I don't think I was really paying attention to it. Because at like, you know, 13, 14 years old, this wasn't really a, a movie that was up my alley. Um, but I didn't know how raunchy it was. And I have to, I have to like, say that you know my 13 year old self would not get all of the jokes you know most of that would just go over my head at the time but um but also i i think i thought this was a real documentary and that's why i was so bored of it back then but looking back on it now and revisiting it it's like really good and it's that kind of like british dry humor that we were talking about when doing in Bruges. But I think this was, uh, I think this was turned up to 11. Wouldn't you say? It's funny that you call this British humor when like no one in it is British. I know, but still though, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Uh, real quick too, before I give you my thoughts, what parts were raunchy? Cause you said this to me earlier and I was confused. I mean, it's not like, it's not raunchy, I guess, for us, like, now, right? But, like, I wouldn't let my kid watch this at 13. Just because, I guess, all the innuendos from their songs. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of that would probably, probably went over your head then. No, that's like, what I'm saying. Yeah, like, yeah, of course. Um. And the one that I only remember is just like the uh, the big bottom one. How about Sex Garden? Which one was that? Well, one thing I really loved about this movie, and I, I did love it. It's obviously you know it's a classic. It um, it's the type of movie that when you watch it now, you recognize all the things that like came from this. Yeah, like every mockumentary after this has kind of taken from this is Spinal Tap, especially like you know fake rock mockumentaries um I, mean, I wouldn't say this was like you know this wasn't the first mockumentary but it would definitely be like a, a, a film that popularized mockumentaries right no yeah i mean it's it's i think it's like it's probably the most like it's obviously not the first but it's the most successful first one i guess right like because I, I did look up, in, uh, was this the first mockumentary? And they brought up a bunch of things that came out before it. And one of them was like Hard Day's Night. And I was like, I don't, that's like not even remotely the same thing. Um, but this exact style of this is Spinal Tap, I think is very, is very kind of ingenious and kind of unique at the time, right? And I think a lot of things since then have taken from this is Spinal Tap it's so easy to buy into it though. Right. Because I mean, first of all, the fact that it's actually directed by Rob Reiner, 
and Rob Reiner like introduces himself as himself. Like no one's in the first like five minutes, no one's pretending to be anyone else but themselves. And so you completely buy into like, okay, this is Rob Reiner and he's directed this documentary. He's followed this band and this is his story. And everything is kind of shot like dead serious from then on out. Right. Yeah. I I mean, that's why I think this movie works so well is because they take it so seriously as far as making it look like a legit documentary. I was reading that there's like a bunch of like rock stars that thought that this is like Ozzy Osbourne was around a bunch of people apparently watching this that were laughing. And he's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, because he, he thought it was a real documentary. Yeah, I heard that he said that the only thing that like gave it away was that they weren't hardcore enough. Because he was like, if this was a real rock band, they would they would be like doing way more stupid shit. Well, and one thing that I really liked about this too is, uh, you know, he might have meant hardcore in a different way, but when I hadn't seen this movie, the only thing I knew about it was the like, this, you know, 11, like turn it to 11. And then I thought this was like a heavy metal band movie. But what I love about it is like, almost none of the songs really fit into like the exact same genre of music. Right. And especially like the growth of the band from like when they started out the 60s to, like, to the... and their, their flower power time. And then, yeah, yeah, like all of that, I think it was like, it just made it feel more real, but it also just, it was just like hilarious. Well, like the black and white footage and like they had the, you know, the documents from the bad hair, the bad hair, but even like when they went back into like their childhood, they shot like fake childhood photos and everything like that. Like they, um, yeah, I, I read somewhere where, where I think it wasn't just, Ozzy Osbourne it was it was a the edge and and a bunch of other people too like cried when they first saw it because of just how like real and how much it spoke to them and 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 their time on the road right and uh so you know I gotta give them credit that they they hit the bar on on realism and you have to think that that world is kind of a parody of itself in a way you know Right. Uh, do you know who uh, Oasis is? Yeah. Band? Yeah. So Liam and Noel Gallagher apparently went to like a screening in like the mid to late 2000s. Okay. And um, the three main guys from Spinal Tap did like a folk song uh, from their movie uh, Waiting for or A Mighty Wind. So they also were in uh, Waiting for Guffin, but they did like a folk rendition to open the movie and uh, one of the brothers was like really pissed about it because he's like, I don't like folk music. And he's like, those are, that's, that's Spinal Tap. Like, this is all, f- that's Spinal Tap. They're in another movie. Spinal Tap isn't real. And the other brother got like really upset because he thought even 20 years later that Spinal Tap was a real band. So they, w- what is their folk band called? Because they call themselves something, right? And, and I found out that, that the folksman. The Folksman, right? That's right. And so the Folksman is actually a uh, different characters they play. And they introduced the Folksman on SNL for a skit. And now it's funny too, because like life imitates art and vice versa, I guess. But um, they tour. Did you know that? Like they toured for like 10 years as as Spinal Tap. Um, But then they opened up their own show 
with themselves as the folksmen. Oh, that's funny. No, I did not. I did not know that. This is obviously, I was not alive when this movie came out. And, uh, you know, even when I then was born, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the Spinal Tap touring. But I, I find it funny that, you know, I, I feel like uh, I, I got into a lot of the uh, kind of audience reaction and, and aftermath of this, of this film, but I didn't get into much any facts about the actual filming. But I wonder how much like boundaries and, and like things that they exploited and pushed through, like all the red tape they had to cut through to get this done. Um, but then on top of that, they decided to push it, right? Like continue the tour, continue to pretend that there's an actual spinal tap. So that, that must've been fun. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know what red tape there would have been as far as like, legally, I don't see anything. Cause the, I think the music, it's obviously they're like, they sound like a lot of real music of the time and before, but I don't think that they, none of it was like, you know, licensed or anything. And then, it's not like they were pretending to play music. Like all the main guys can play music uh, pretty well. So like that's right. them and their voices are actually pretty good. Yeah. Which, no, it actually makes like, the movie work. Like some of the, some of the songs are actually like complete bangers. And I was like, wow, I, <laughs> I would totally listen to this. Um, I was really happy with Stonehenge. Like I'm glad that that worked out. <laughs> so the funny thing about Stonehenge is that, people thought that they were making direct fun of Black Sabbath. The year prior, Black Sabbath, I think 1980, the film came out in 1984. So in 1983, Black Sabbath ordered a prop that was just way too large for the stage. And so they had to abandon it. And then this movie came out where the joke is they made this <laughs> the Stonehenge 18 inches instead of 18 feet, making it you know incredibly small. Um, but actually that whole arc in the movie, I don't know if you know this part, but the whole arc in the movie about making the stone inch small was actually the 20 minute short that they had to make to pitch the film. And they made that in, back in 1982. So they actually did the whole stone edge, uh, joke a year before black Sabbath made their measuring mistake. Right. I, I do think that's kind of funny too, because he writes on the, the little piece of paper, 18 inches, but like they're all British. So why was he writing 18 inches? <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So they, in order to make this movie, I think they were paid like some amount of money to write a script and they made a 20 minute short. And a lot of that footage made it into the movie, which is like really cool that they were able to shoot something so well that it ended up. <laughs> they also, at that point, 20 minutes is like a fourth of the movie. Right. Because this is so short. Um, but yeah, I, I overall, just this movie is pretty impressive on a lot of fronts. One, for it being kind of so groundbreaking. Two, how good the music is and how well those guys played. I don't think it's anywhere near as great if they don't have some musical talent. Although I guess maybe you could take it in a different direction and sort of have them just be like frauds. But I think the uh, joke would be like, the joke would be up before it even started if they went that direction. I think the only reason it, it you're right, the reason it does just work so well is because the music is actually good. And the other thing that I think makes this really amazing is like, 
it's kind of like a sliding scale. The movie starts out very serious. And I'd say the first 20 minutes, I, I can understand if you didn't know about this movie being confused that it's real. You bought the, the part where the drummer spontaneously combusted. That's after. <laughs> the, I think in the first, in like five or six minutes in, they talk about how like one of their, one of their drummers died in a free gardening accident. And the cops are like, it's best not to know what happened. And then the next choked on his own vomit. Um, no, it no, was someone else. Someone else's vomit. But you, but can't, not, you can't dust for vomit. You can't dust for vomit. Um, the spontaneous combusting was later. And obviously that gives a lot of weight. But I, I think the movie in believability sort of slides down and towards like the end where there's just like ridiculous stuff in there. But also just like how how serious the story starts and how like the story of Spinal Tap, when this movie begins, they feel like a really big band, right? Right. But as the movie goes along, you get little details here, little details there. They talk about how like we need the album to come out. And then you find out, oh, the first album didn't do that great. And then like, oh, the boss, I love uh, our gig in Boston got canceled, but don't worry, that's not a big college town. <laughs> that, and that, that just was, gets that worse and worse. And I think that, like, well, they're dried up at that point, right? Because they're explaining like, oh, good thing that, and you know, this is kind of at the end, but they came to the realization that, that uh, they're like hitting their 40s and who wants to listen to, you know, 40 year olds rock out, which it, it's funny because the big, big, actual successful bands, real bands, I mean, they're like 60 and, and I'd still pay to go see like a Stones concert, right? I mean, Stone still sells out, like, stadiums. Right, exactly. So it's just, like, it's excuses. It feels like excuses on, like, oh, we're so big, but it's a good thing we're quitting because now we have time on our hands. No one's going to see us anyways. But I think where that really comes to fruition, and one of my favorite jokes in the movie, is when they're staying at that hotel and the, the manager, you know, they fuck up or something, and instead of, like, 17 rooms there's like one room with with a no, large it's, instead of seven rooms it's one room on floor seven on floor seven that's right and so you know while he's sorting all that out they the the band's like off on the side of the lobby and then some some like fans come up and they're like uh, uh here they come and they just surpass them and go straight to like someone who's bigger you younger. know Younger and that, and, used to, that used to open for them and, and way more popular. And so they try to introduce themselves, but <laughs> they take it like as an attack. Yeah. The, the balance, their, uh, their managers, like, yeah, this is stay away. And, and then my favorite line is, um, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll talk later, but right now we got to go over there and sit in the lobby and wait for the limo. Yeah. We don't have time. <laughs> I, um, so I like the way the movie starts you know, obviously it's got the interview part, but then when they meet, uh, when you meet Fran Drescher for the first time. Right. And there's like Fran Drescher, which obviously is a, you know, a kind of a big cameo and like everyone notices, but then did you know who the two mimes were? No. So the mime actually serving food was Dana Carvey. And the what? other, and the other mime that says mime is money was Billy Crystal. It's so it's so like uh 
blink and if you you know blink you miss it sort of thing but mime is money is one of my favorite quotes from the movie <laughs> right and it also is like I, I i didn't look up timing wise how big billy crystal would have been at this point but it is kind of interesting that he came in for one scene had to get put in all this mime makeup just to say like mime is money but it is probably one of the cooler parts of the movie well, you have um, to you have to think that if Rob Reiner is directing this, it must have been some sort of like favor or something, right? Between, between them. And then I also right after that, the limo driver uh, is the guy from City Slickers, which you haven't seen. No, but he had to be someone. They gave him way too much monologue. <laughs> I just, I first of all, I can understand him getting upset that they like put the window up on him, but he didn't get upset about that. He got upset that they didn't understand Frank Sinatra. <laughs> They just don't get it. The young, the young guys, they just, they don't, they don't get it today. I lo- I mean, he's in the middle of a sentence and it's just like the divider in the limo just rolls up <laughs> and it's clear, right? It's like a clear plexiglass so they can still look at each other as, as the divider goes up. And there's, there's so many, so there's so many little details and, and like funny moments in this film. I feel like you can, actually pick something up like every watch right right after that they go back to the interviews and they're going over their like just i i love little details when you have to have someone create the art or you have to have someone create a a funny like title for no reason like uh i used to listen to the futurama like commentaries and they're honestly like funnier than some of the episodes a lot of times i believe it but the work that goes into, was that a sarcastic, I believe it? <laughs> no, that was like, I don't think Futurama was that funny. So I totally believe the commentary is actually funnier. That's what I thought. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> but the, the amount of work that goes into like, if you see like, a, a, like a, a shelf of books and like all the funny titles they give. So when they're going over their albums and they have like intravenous de Milo and then like, uh, first of all, I could like see that being like a, a Blink-182 album, like, in the 90s. Intravenous de Milo is a amazing title. Right. And then I love Shark Sandwich only because they're like, and the uh, the review was just two words, shit sandwich. And they're like, oh, who said that? You can't print that. Where where was that printed? <laughs> uh, I love how, how I think it was Fran Drescher's character, Bobby Flank? Bobby? I have no idea. She was Fran Drescher to me. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, but... She was like complaining about their album cover for Smell the Glove, which honestly, when they described the, the album cover for Smell the Glove, I was like, it actually doesn't sound any, any worse than like some of the things that I saw that I've seen on album covers. But then you come to realize that it was like, first of all, maybe there was no leeway for them because they're not that popular. So that, you know, the, the, comp, the recording company was more strict on them. But then also it's like, I love the realization that he's like, oh, the, the younger, more successful, popular rock rocker has like girls with whips and he's tied up. And they're like, no, no, no. It works because he's the victim. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're like, oh, oh, I love Nigel. Like, oh, you just have to, you just have to twist it, right? He just, he just twisted it. He's like, what's, I love the other guy. He's like, what's wrong with a, a sexy album cover? And they're all like, no, 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 sexist. <laughs> That's also Nigel. I think 
I think Nigel uh, probably gets the the best lines throughout the movie. Like he's, or at least he's like the part I enjoyed the most from this. Christopher Guest. Yeah. Um. Obviously, they're all great. Uh. But his like, I don't know, his demeanor throughout, and just like he got he got to play an idiot. Yeah. they're all idiots in their own ways but he got to play the dumbest of them like fran gesture's like don't talk don't let him know you're you're an idiot <laughs> so i like that's obviously lends to being funnier i like uh but back to the fran Drescher thing she was like explaining how the album art just isn't gonna fly and she's like you know you don't need to be clever with it the, the white album was successful and so i take it like the biggest idiot for me was ian the band manager so just the the that little hint of like, oh, the white album was successful and it was just white. <laughs> and to have their their Smell the Glove album just be a black album cover, but not just black, right? No words. No words, no nothing, like not even the band. I'm like, oh my God. Well, when he's talking to Fran Jesher, he says, um, you should have seen the album they wanted. She's like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, we're not even doing this one. Like, why does well, that even, matter? Even David and Nigel were like, holy shit. Like, this is the compromise. Like, black is just, how is the compromise? Yeah. I I think some of the funnier scenes too, and they're they're kind of more subtle, but the scenes when they're actually performing or when they're about to perform uh, Nigel talking about the like the craft services basically in the dressing room and like, well, I just, the meat is bigger than the bread. And so like, uh, and he's like, well, no, no, just fold the meat. And he's like, but then I have to fold the bread. And he's like, but why do you have to fold the bread? Cause it just keeps wanting to be folded. Yeah. And then he starts folding the meat over the tiny bread. And I, I seriously almost lost it there. Was and scary. then like this olives, look, this olive has the thing in it, but this olive doesn't. It's a disaster. What am I supposed to do with this? So one super awesome thing I learned about the movie after the fact is that um, basically the whole movie was ad-libbed. Right. And they, it was ad-libbed so much that they wanted, um, I think the producers asked the Writers Guild of America when they were putting this into their like uh, collection that to give every actor a writing credit and they were denied like harshly denied so only like the credited i guess uh writers were were but they tried for 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 the actors and and so not only was like the whole movie ad-libbed was since there was no script and no like real direction for the film you know, the film ended up, what, what, which version did we watch? Like the 82 minute one, right? Right. The film ended up having over a hundred hours of footage and somewhere out there is a four hour cut of, of this is Spinal Tap. I don't know. I don't know if that works four hours. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't sit through it. No, but. Another like really important point about this movie is it's not just like a, a just a goofy comedy with like a lot of ad lib dialogue. Like the story is actually really well done, which is why I think a lot of like rockers love this movie and like people kind of thought it was real. Like the David's girlfriend coming in and Nigel like disliking her. Yeah. Like it kind of has this like Yoko Ono vibes to it. Um, Although I think Yoko Ono was probably more talented. 
and it it was like Nigel's acting, Christopher Guest's acting, it kind of like gave me this idea of like there's more going on to this. Like, did you get a thought that Nigel and David's girlfriend hooked up? No. Uh, I thought that Nigel was gay for David. Really? Yeah, that's the vibes I got. And then at the end, when his girlfriend's on one side of the stage and Nigel's on the other and David's playing, I thought he was going to have to make a choice. So when David originally brought up that his girlfriend was going to join the tour and Nigel was upset, I thought, oh, maybe there's something going on. But the the line that really made me believe that something was was up was, David at one point says, oh, Nigel and Janine, you know, they butt heads, but there's great love between them. And Janine just looks in the camera. She's like, oh, yes. But like the way she said it was like, like, have I been caught? Like, whatever. Oh, I took her. I took her. Oh, yes. Like, like not really, but I'm just going to say, oh, yes. Like a sarcastic. Oh, yes. Another funny thing about the movie and and maybe like gives you a kind of explains your uh david david's girlfriend nigel love triangle is uh so this was cut out of the movie but but there was a there was a subplot where all the band members were hooking up with the lead of the opening act for them that we actually never meet in the uh in the in the cut that we watched but and i think it's on the dvd uh but all the band members at different points of the film hook up with the lead singer of, of their opening act. And she gives them all herpes. That's why in some of the shots, you see different band members with like cold sores around their mouths. Yeah, I noticed um, David when they're talking with Fran Drescher about the album cover. Yeah. Like that's the only point I noticed, like a huge cold sore like on the top of his lip under his nose. And I was like, is that going to come up? And it never does, which obviously you now know why. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, that's kind of like the sexual tension that, that you were feeling, but it wasn't between uh, Janine. No, I just think that line is overtly lending itself to the idea that maybe something happened there. I, I took it like they freaking hated each other. And David is just like oblivious to the fact that they hate each other or he knows it, but he doesn't want to admit that his best friend and his girlfriend or his wife hate each other. So I was talking earlier about how some of the concert moments are probably like subtly hilarious. And then also, but like some of the funniest parts first, like the guy having to come out and spin Nigel around on the ground. Cause he's too old to do it himself. Right. But the funniest one to me is the shells. You mean when, the, pe- the penises? What do you mean penises? What do you mean the shells? They all start out in these like cellular things that open up. The penises. How are those penises? How are those not? I don't want to, I mean, <laughs> I think now the audience has a good idea of what your penis might look like, but it's, it opens up completely. How does that? Because <laughs> it's, it's closed. With the veins, with like thick ventricle veins veining out all over. Oh, maybe it is a dick. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, the, that's not the part that I found hilarious. The part, the fact that Derek's wouldn't open up the whole time, and then the guy's like, 
brings out a hammer and then a blowtorch and then finally obviously opens up like when it shouldn't open up at the end when right. both the guys get back in like that whole part was just it's like what it's probably the longest gag like continuous gag of the entire movie it's hilarious i like that you know a lot of rock like actual rock songs and and uh, anthems have like you know double entendres and innuendos and and you know stuff covering the fact that it's about sex or love or you know whatever but i and i think they do a pretty good job like obviously the the song that they sing about the bottoms about you know girls butts reminds me of like fat bottom girls where it's just like you're gonna go out and say it right just like plainly but then everything else is like pretty good in innuendo and then comes sex garden and it's just like the most obvious like I'm going to plow you. I'm going to bring my pitchfork and I can't wait till the, the fields raise and like everything like that is just like so in your face. And I think it's one of the last songs that they sing, but um, the, I, I don't know. My, fa- my favorite in your face innuendo part was when he's talking about all the classical music and he's playing that one number and then the, the, um, director's like well what's that called lick my love pump yeah he's like i get a i get a lot of my um <laughs> i get a lot of my uh inspiration from bach and mozart you know uh, i call it mock it's quite beautiful and he plays all this like classical stuff and then yeah he's like huh oh, i call it lick my love pump i really didn't enjoy the uh arty fufkin scene he just really, he was probably the creepiest character. Buffkin. He was the dude in I think Cleveland who like takes them to the to the album signing. He's like in his like of, record like, store, yeah. And then he's like, just just spank me, just kick me in the ass, all right? This is all my fault. Just and like it's just bending over and won't take no for an answer. Just beat me up, really, really. Let's go outside, beat beat the crap. Out. <laughs> you know, it's what's funny too is like, and you may have seen this in your research, but I was reading that. Uh, Kiss was talking about the scene where they get lost on the way to stage, and that uh, uh, they where were saying Spinal Tap gets lost. Yeah, when Spinal Tap gets lost on the way to stage, and uh, the lead singer of Kiss was saying that um, they were on the fourth floor, and then they went down to the first floor to go to the stage, and they couldn't, and they go up to the second floor, and it's not there either, and then they hear their name being announced, and it turns out they had to go to the third floor to get to the stage. So it was like he thought it was like maybe partially based on them. I like, I mean, kind of just like how timeless this film is, and and it's like realistic, but not at all. And and you know, as as many like accolades this film has, the fact that this is a parody, and the fact that so many like reputable rock bands can relate to this film. You know, I said this before, but I think that says more about that culture, that like on the road, uh, hair metal type of rock and roll culture that it's so extreme, it's so ridiculous that it it parodies itself, you know? Right. And, and two, I think that even without the the purely comedic moments, like the really tiny Stonehenge or uh, Derek walking through airport security with a, 
a tinfoiled cucumber as like to like have a bulge um you know the the idea of david's girlfriend like taking over and now they're going to these like really shitty venues like immediately because she's she's not qualified for that job and nigel quitting because of it and then them dealing with the fallout of that i I love when they're going over all the songs they can play like well can't play that can't play that that's mostly nigel and Derek's like oh that's a really cozy 10 minute set (laughs) and Derek's like why don't we do our uh why don't we do the whatever and he's like (laughs) david's like we're not doing a an experimental jazz album for the crowd. And then they end up having to because, you know, they don't have anything else. But the idea of like brands, bands breaking up, it's like, you know, that that happens all the time. And so like the way they do this is one funny, but two, like lends itself, you know, it finds itself in reality because that's like just it, it felt real. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there's parts that are absolutely off the wall ridiculous um but then you know a majority of the movie i could see it happening the other thing too and i don't think we've talked enough about about him i think you know i said nigel's probably my favorite character but Derek is a very close second he's not given like he's not given like a leading role in the comedy but when he comes in like delivers like i love when they're talking about Stonehenge and how it's like not going to work. And he's like, well, what if we just, we just keep the dwarves clear like for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, <laughs> or then talking about like the saucy Jack rock musical. That was my favorite part. And also like I would go to a saucy Jack, Jack the Ripper rock musical. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. That sounds actually like a really good idea. Um. So yeah, he has some really great lines. He's obviously the one stuck in the uh, the penis, as you t- called it. Yep, that's um, what it is. So I, I, th- I mean, all three of the the main guys are great. I love like the drummer just talking about like, you know, if if I wasn't doing rock music, as long as I still have the sex and drugs, like you know, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, so yeah. Two like monologue parts, both coming from Nigel. Um, I really like the one where he's asked, what would you, uh... okay, so I think in, in this order, it goes, I like your shirt. And he goes, yes, it's, uh, it's to scale with my anatomy. It's exactly the way I would look like if you opened me up. And the, and the director is like, all right, so let me get this straight. If I took all your flesh, and muscles and blood out of your body this is what you would look like he's like yeah and he goes but it wouldn't be green and he goes yeah but it would he's like why and then he explains like the veins are blue and and uh so that's that's funny and then the other part was when they were asking him what could you see yourself doing if it's not like rock and roll and he goes and he's like i'll be like a like a salesman at a hat store and then he like starts like role playing being a salesman at a hat store. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, that's how the movie ends, right? He's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't have that in in your size. But would you like to try a brown one?" <laughs> well, I, I think what's great is so this movie's 82 minutes. The last five minutes are credits, so it's really like you could almost say it's 77. But those five minutes of credits 
are still joke after joke after joke, including like oh the the hog summer camp for pale young boys. Uh, I'm named after the saint of quality f- footwear. footwear. Yeah. Uh, David saying I believe everything I read, which is like a lot of people suffer from nowadays. You know, um, you know what's really funny is that how did a lot of people walk away from this movie thinking, oh, it's it's a it's a real documentary, right? And the only place that actually gives away that it's a film and that these are actors that are playing characters is at the very end of the movie when the credits start rolling. But I think two things they did really smart in that was one, they did all like the production credits first and they made, and they did the acting credits somewhere in the middle. And then two, they had like stuff running under it, like those jokes you were talking about to distract the audience from like actually reading the credits, you know? No. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The other thing I noticed too, is like, like I said, a lot of the jokes are very subtle. They don't point them out. You either catch them or you, or you don't. But I think it was, uh, it was Derek played by Harry Shearer who has like a different girl with him. Every time you see him, like not at a concert. Right. And I just thought that was like a nice little touch for the movie. Um, also nigel nigel saying solos are my trademark and then taking a violin and using it as a guitar pick also i i don't think we talked about ian's costume choices like his his regular wear that he you know uh his outfits are like ridiculous day by day like every scene he's wearing something absolutely like stupid he, he you know that scene where he was like knocking on janine's outfit really really badly but then and this is like way before this movie was made, but um, he freaking looked like he just like stumbled out of Hogwarts, like Gryffindor <laughs> colors all the way. I did notice the Gryffindor colors. Did you know that? So first of all, how many members were in this band total Spinal Tap over the years? Did you know? Oh yeah. He, over the years, he said something like what? 37, 57. 37, which 37. most of them were drummers. And I do love that uh, the, their last drummers, their, their drummer spine spontaneously combusts and then it goes to Japan after that and they have a new drummer. Yeah. But J.K. Rowling, 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 J.K. Rowling based the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher changing each year based off Spinal Tap was like part of her inspiration. Didn't? One of the guys in Spinal Tap say something about going to an all-boys school called Hogs something? Uh, well, that was the summer camp. He was saying that the, um, they're like manage, uh, whoever Fran Drescher's boss was, was right. like, he started a summer camp for pale boys called Hogswood. Hogswood. Which I said like two minutes ago. So uh, it was more than that. Good. No, no, no. But, but so, I mean, do you think she could have gotten Hogwarts out of Hogswood? I don't know. I just I now I, get, well, I gave see, you now, the info then, I had. Okay, but look, you gave me the info you had, and then you know Ian is wearing stuff that looks like, you know, Gryffindor students would wear, and then there's Hogswood, and I'm now thinking that J.K. Rowling took a lot more than you might think for inspiration from this is Spinal Tap to Harry Potter. You want to o- open an Inquisition? I do. Um, uh, I have another character we haven't talked about is the um, 
it's I forget which branch of the military, but I'm just gonna say Air Force. The Air Force guy that meets them at the base for the Addies weekend that they get to play. Oh, he's played by Willard, something Willard, right? Fred Willard. Fred Willard. Yeah. Rest in peace. Yes. He was he was so great in that tiny little role and I loved seeing him in it. Um, you know, he's in it for two minutes and everything he says was hilarious. So I, I think that's, what's great about this movie is like, no matter how small of a part someone had, everyone delivered in this movie, the, the guy that booked only one room and they needed seven. And then they talked, he, the Ian's like, what do you expect us to fit 14 people in a, in a King bed? And he's like, don't tempt me, sir. <laughs> you know, everyone does so great in this movie and that's why it's a classic. Cause no matter how small the part, they nailed it. Well, also, so you're not just like throwing away your, your minor characters, giving them personalities, giving them, things to say that are funny that make you laugh like billy crystal saying you know mime is money um that's something that you might miss on your first watch and that gives the the film a lot of rewatchability and and that's part of what makes it so timeless you know so yeah no i i i like it i i'm glad we watched it again i have a lot more appreciation for it um and and you know walking away from this movie when i was like 13 years old and thinking about this movie through you know the rest of my life through then i just thought the funniest part was you know the amplifier amplifier's dial goes up to 11 and now watching it i'm like that is nowhere near the funniest part of the movie I think it's probably one of the funniest parts if you've never heard it, obviously. And what it points out is how funny the rest of this movie is. And it is something like that. I'm really glad I've finally seen. And I was reading a review just by a random person on IMDb. And they were saying that this is the type of movie that when you first watch it, it may, you may wonder like, how is this so big? but like that the jokes sit with you. And that's true. Like the jokes really sit with you for days. And when you think about them later on, they make you laugh. And so like years from now, when I watch Spinal Tap again, it's something that'll just, you know, it'll be ingrained in that, you know, I'll really love. So I'm, I'm really happy that I've now seen it. Hey, so thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Milan. Hey, and this is David. And I finally watched This is Spinal Tap.